So I would like to invite you guys this morning to take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And you may be thinking to yourself, Chad, you asked me to get to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 last Sunday, and we never got to it. And you're right, we didn't. But we are today. So I'm excited about that. So if you have your Bibles, please get them out and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I really want you guys to to get the Word of God in front of you so you're reading it because we're going to do a little mini Bible study together this morning just for a little period of time as we we talk about our our week two here in our union with Christ. So the title of this message this morning is called Getting Into Christ. Getting Into Christ. And this doesn't mean like, you know, uh, this isn't like a casual term like, you know, is that person into me, you know, or, you know, man, I'm really into like, you know, the Patriots, you know what I mean? Like, man, I'm really into like fish, you know, I mean like the band, you know, that's, that's, that's my thing, you know, I'm a big, ba- I'm a big fish fan. Anybody familiar with the band Fish at all? Yeah, okay. I'm a huge fish fan. So, so when, when someone would ask me, you know, like, you know, what are your interests? What are your preferences? I'd be like, well, I'm really into fish. I like them, you know. Not the seared kind, you know, not the baked kind, you know, the, the, the music kind anyway. So uh, we're not talking about getting into Christ in a casual way this morning. It's a very serious tone that we have to our study of God's word this morning. But we are going to talk about this idea of getting into, into Christ. And so as you, if you guys were here last week, this idea that we're talking about, the theme, the running theme, the running thrust of our union with Christ or this study really centers around this idea of identity, how it is that we identify ourselves. And so this word, this idea of identity, uh, just a simple uh, definition is this, if you're just going to go to the dictionary and understand what this term identity is, this is really what you're going to find. It is the distinguishing character, traits, attributes, features, or qualities of an individual. That's essentially what identity is. And some synonyms we could use for this would be individualism, individuality, self-identity, or selfhood. And so we kind of Uh, spoke to that a little bit last week about with regards to, okay, when we're talking about identity and we're talking about self-identity, how is it that we are to describe it? And how is it that we are to look at it? How is it that we are to assume identity? There's really two ways to understand this concept of identity with regards to our lives and our personhood. And we talked about this last week. We talked about this idea of our identity being fluid or fixed. Fluid or fixed. And we talked about how in in the culture, in society, in the world, there's this ongoing message, this predominant message that we can in every way assume our own identity and that it is changeable, it's open-ended, it's adjustable, and it's really determined by the person based on opinion, experiences, etc., So the culture really in their messaging is telling me and you, hey, your identity is personal to you and you can determine your identity to be whatever it is you want in accord with how you feel. There is a term out there called trans species. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But it's this idea that even people can not identify themselves as human beings, but depending on how they feel, they can identify as a different species. This is 
what is going on in the culture. This is what is being propagated by society. That you can essentially determine your own species and identify with that depending on the day. So if you want to identify as a cat, you can. If you want to identify as a dog, sure. And I know this sounds silly, but really what's going on, guys, is the culture. God has given the culture up, really, if you read Romans 1, to a debased mind, to a, a, a mind of futility, in that there is no sense, objective sense of reality that you can essentially make up your own reality in your own mind, depending on your own opinion. And this is really the beginning stages of God's wrath being poured out on a culture and a society that has rejected him. If you go read Romans 1, you'll see that. Paul says that and prophesies that about cultures that reject God. They are given up to a debased mind where reality is their own subjective opinion. But we talked about this idea of fluid identity, and then we also talked about the other way in which we can understand identity, which is fixed. And for the Christian, this is how we are to understand predominantly our identity. Our identity is not fluid, but it is fixed. It is firm. It is secure. It is moored. It is unwavering. And how do we know this? We know this because the word of God tells us. The word of Christ tells us that our identity is fixed. It is unwavering. It is secure. It is firm. Just as God is, so is our identity. Just so as God's word is, so is our identity. Let me give you a couple of examples. Malachi 3.6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You may think to yourself, wow, that's an interesting statement. So because God does not change, Israel is not consumed. In other words, God has kept a promise to Israel and through his covenant love, he will not change his mind with regards to how he treats Israel. Even though their fathers turned aside from their statutes and their laws and his commandments, even though they rejected Yahweh, God says, I do not change, therefore my covenant with you, I will not negate. I will continue to show my steadfast love to you, therefore I will not consume you through your rebellion to me. Essentially, that's what God is saying. Psalm 102 says this, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same in your years of no end. This is God. This is God. God is not like my five-year-old pair of jeans that I wish to fit in forever. Don't you just, sometimes you just, you have the article of clothing, right? That you just, you know, you just gravitate towards it. You may have like five pairs of jeans or, or three shirts or, you know, four or five blouses, right? And you have these, all of these articles of clothing lined up in your closet, but you always kind of just go towards the same ones that really feel comfortable to you, you know? And you're like, oh man, I just, I just feel, it just feels right to put these, 
pair of jeans on, right? So I'm the same way. I, I can wear jeans until Shannon just basically tells me to throw them out. Right? Uh, Shannon will tell me sometimes, uh, I'll, I'll, wear, I'll buy a shirt and she'll, she'll, she'll buy a shirt for me. And there's, there's this allotted period of time where I'll wear it in public. You guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's a lot of time where I'll, I'll wear this shirt in public, but then it gets to the point because I've worn it so much, it's gone through the laundry, it's gone through the wash, it's been dried, I've worn it, it almost becomes like see-through. You guys, you know what I'm talking about? These shirts you have, in your, the other day I walked in and it's one of these shirts that I just wear at the house. I won't wear it in public, but I walk into the room and I got the shirt on, Shannon's like, you might as well just not be wearing a shirt. It was so worn out. Think about this for a moment. Just as those articles in those garments, they wear out. It is the same with even the foundation of the earth. That's what God is saying. Even the heavens that God has created will one day perish. It will not remain. But God will. God does because God does not change. And so we can see our identity in Christ as unchanging and fixed. Why? Because God does not change. He is immutable. Listen to this. Heaven and earth will pass away. This is Jesus. Heaven and earth will pass away. A lot like Psalm 102, right? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My words will not pass away. Christ said, I, I, I am immutable. I will not pass. I will not waver. There will be never a time where my truth is not authoritative and not perfect and not good. There's never a time where my truth and what I've declared and what I've decreed will not uh, achieve every single purpose that I have uh, assumed it to do. You can take every word that I have to the bank and it lasts forever. It is infinite and eternal. And so it is with our identity. It is not fluid, but fixed. And finally, Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, settled, unchanging. It's as if when we look to the heavens and we see the stars and we see the sky and we look at it and it looks so permanent, like it can't be changed or can't be moved, that there's no power, no force that could ever uh, change or adjust what we see when we look up. It is that way with God. It is as if the heavens declare his unchangingness. And so it is that everything that has been declared in the heavens to be unchanging with regards to God's word, so it is on the earth. That God and his word will remain and it is immovable and unshakable and unadjustable. And so it is with our identity. Essentially, our vessel of identity is moored to the peer of Christ, which is the truth. Our vessel of identity is moored to the peer of Christ that we find in his truth. So we talked about that for a moment last week. But here's really what we want to do through this series. Here is our essential understanding and idea that we want to consider. This is what we want to do. We want to recover and recapture a biblical worldview 
concerning our self-identification. And we do this by looking beyond ourself and beholding the sweeping, the extensive, the broad, the complete, the dynamic nature of Christ's effectual work, accomplishing union with him on our behalf. That is essentially what we desire in this series to understand. That we must understand a biblical worldview about identity that's not informed by the culture, that is not informed by society, that is not accord to worldly standards and worldly traditions, but it comes, it is origined, and the object of it is Christ and his work for us. So that's what we desire to do. Christ has done every necessary thing to enjoy union with him. Let me say that again. Christ has done every necessary thing for you to enjoy union with him, which means how much are you responsible for? Nothing. That should take a big burden off your shoulders this morning. There is nothing that you can accomplish or do that effectualizes your union with Christ outside of faith, right? Trust. We trust in Christ and therefore drawn into, enter into a union with him. But he has done every necessary thing to accomplish that so that we can enjoy that and find great delight and pleasure in our union with him. And it provides really this necessary, you know, pretext for our birth and our growth and our maturity um, in and through Christ by, by faith. So last week we looked at this idea of our union with Christ. And we use this term in Christ, right? We use this term, if you guys were here, we talked about the idea that our union with Christ, Paul really uses a term more than any other term, and in the New Testament, a term that is used more than any other term to really express and identify this union with Christ, Paul uses this term, these two little words, in Christ. In Christ. That is how the Christian is identified more than anything else in the New Testament. It wasn't a Christian. It wasn't a follower of the way. Paul used this term in Christ, and he used it a lot. In fact, 89 times in the New Testament, this term is used to describe someone who is in union with Christ. This little term. And it's made up of one noun and one preposition. We talked about this last week. The noun here is Christ. It is this idea of, of Jesus being unique and matchless and unequaled. And it's a reference to his divinity. It's a reference to his godness. But it's also an understanding of his humanness and all of its fullness. Jesus and Christ coming together in his name. Fully human, truly human, truly God. It is made up of that one noun and one preposition in but it is a dynamic and powerful preposition. This term in, we talked last week about how this represents and describes our union with Christ. This word in denotes a fixed position in state or being. So in other words, when we are in Christ, we are in a fixed position. We are in a fixed state of being. Hence the term and hence the understanding of our identity being what? Fixed, not fluid. So we are in a fixed state, a fixed position when we are in Christ. 
Not only that, this word in indicates a point reached. In other words, we talked about this last week in our life group. When we are in Christ, there's no more searching spiritually. We are in Christ. We have all of the necessary components to live a life of godliness and righteousness that is honoring to God. So in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing. There's no spiritual blessing that God is withholding from you if you are in Christ. And you don't need to search for it. Your search is over when you are found in Christ. That should be a big burden off your shoulders as well. So not only is it a fixed position we come to, but it's a place and time in which we've reached, and it also denotes a sense of origin. That everything that proceeds proceeds from Christ. All of the spiritual blessings, everything that we've received in Christ comes from him. He is the origin of it and he's the object of it as well. So this word in is really big. It's really huge. It's two letters, but it means a lot. It says a lot about our reality of our identity in Christ. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter one. And uh, we're going to do a little back and forth here this morning if you guys are up for that. We did this in our life group, so life group, if my life group is, if you are here and you're in our life group, you guys can't answer these questions, okay? You are forbidden to do this, unless we need help, okay? So I want us to read here, and I'm going to read here verbatim, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, and I want you to notice something, church. I want you to notice something, how much Paul uses the term in Christ, in him, or through him, or through Christ, okay? So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to bring it out to you guys, and I want you to give me some feedback as far as what you observed with regards to what it is that we have received in Christ, okay? Can we do that? So there's a little Bible study. I love these. These are good. These are good. Okay, let's start. Verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Can you take that slide off? Thanks. That's cheating. <laughs> Pierre's like, oh, shoot. Hope you guys didn't see that. Okay. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, can I get an amen and a hallelujah for that? This to me is one of the most complete and thorough sort of descriptions and explanations of who we are in Christ. So, anybody? Give me a couple. Give me one. What have we received in Christ in accord with what Paul has told us here in Ephesians chapter 1? Spiritual blessing, first one. Yeah. So hold on a second. Hold on. Spiritual blessing. Awesome. So here's how we have to understand this passage. Paul gives us a summary statement, right? So when we talk about being blessed in God or blessed in Christ, that's pretty like broad, it's an umbrella kind of statement. Like a lot of things can fit in this umbrella called blessing, right? So we are blessed through Christ or in Christ. So this is really awesome. Paul, this is a little like inductive study here. Paul gives us a summary statement of who we are in Christ. And then he goes into case by case. He starts to break this down within the context of these passages. But the first one is, yeah, we are blessed in Christ. Now the question is, is, how are we, what specifically does that mean for us? But that's good, Mary. Todd, yeah. Okay, chosen, yep. Chosen in Christ, that would be in verse 4. Yep, okay. Sure. Yes. Yep. Anybody else? Okay, adoption. Good. Adoption, verse 5. Jackson. Redemption, verse 7. Yep. Forgiveness, verse 7. Yep. I don't have that. <laughs> ah, no, she's home. <laughs> verse 7 okay yeah yeah okay okay grace okay anybody else inheritance good verse 11 yeah anybody else sorry yeah we already talked we, yeah we said that one predestined uh-huh anybody else the Holy Spirit, okay. Yep. We're missing a couple. That's fine. Hold on, hold on. Rebecca, yep. Salvation, okay. Redemption, salvation. Mystery of his will. Mm, that's good. That's good. It, it was a mystery up until, in a sense, God's mystery was mysterious <laughs> because, because it was, was prophesied, prophesied 
in the Old Testament, and it was prophesied, you know, as Paul says, um, dimly or within a mirror or we, when the prophets were, were prophesying, they did not have the full picture of what they were actually prophesying until Christ came. So the mystery of his will now is brought to fulfillment in Christ. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Unity. Yep, we have unity in Christ. Verse 10. Good. Is that it? Okay. That's good. That's good. That's good. We're going to move on. So bring up that list real quick. So we have faithful. We are, well, our identity is faithful. We are faithful in Christ, verse 2. We are blessed in Christ, verse 3. Chosen in Christ, verse 4. Adopted in Christ, verse 5. Redeemed in Christ, verse 7. Forgiven for our sins in Christ, verse 7. Unified in Christ or unity with one another in verse 10. Inheritance, we've received an inheritance in Christ, verse 11. We have a hope in Christ, verse 12. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, verse 13. Amen? Amen. Now, why would you ever want the world to tell you how to determine your identity when you have that? Why would you give the world or the culture one inch when you have that? And that's the point. That's the point. So how does Paul come to this conclusion? How does he discover these features of our identity? How does he come to an understanding to uncover the truth of our identity? How does he understand these things? What is the method? What is the way that he is brought into a revelation of this in Christ. Now this is God's word, so we can understand that this is unchanging, unalterable. It is fixed because it comes from the very mouth of God whose character and whose substance is unchanging and perfect and impeccable. So we are to understand his word to be the same. Paul had two options, and I think we have two options to figure out and to understand how we come to a sense of identity within ourselves. The first way that we can do this is to look within. To look within. In a sense, we can rely on our union with ourself to determine our identity. So we can look within in order to understand this. And let me just say this, that the Christian quest for identity has assumed predominantly an unbiblical method of discovery by looking within oneself. This is not just in the culture and in the world. That the way the culture has determined and has laid out the method in the way for which we are to understand identity, the church has in many ways predominantly assumed that and has taken that and has revamped it and has remessaged it and has put a Christian veneer on it so that Christians are taught to look within themselves to understand their identity. But when we consider Ephesians chapter 1, that is the last place we should be looking for our identity. Whether it's influenced by New Age, astrology, the occult practices, and by occult I just mean 
obscure or secret. There are occult practices out there, New Age being one of them, astrology being one of them. What they essentially do is they cause the person to look within oneself, to strip the ego away in order to discover the true sense of self that's been there all along. That is the world's method in which we are to go about these things. New Age often promotes this idea of uh, the law of attraction. Oh, if you guys are ever familiar with that, the law of attraction in the sense that the power of your words attracts spiritual blessing, that simply by speaking things out, you get what you speak out. These are all sort of internal, and, and, and you're taught through New Age uh, mythology that the sense of your identity really is determined by what you speak. Because what you speak is what you receive. So your identity is wrapped in the power of your own words. And New Age sort of, sort of promotes this idea. Astrology really looks at, to a certain degree, looks out, but essentially it's really about in, right? You look to the stars to understand your personality, to understand who you are, right? But ultimately, even though there's a sense you're looking away, really the object of your experience is within. So we can uh, identify ourselves as different astrological, uh, astrological signs. But these false religions, all they do is they promote spiritual techniques that try to strip away the ego in order to identify a sense of true self. But everything is inward focused. You look at secular humanism, the idea that humans are the pinnacle and supreme agent of morality, right? Whatever humans de deem to be moral, good, right, and just is what the reality of life is. But as Christianity continues to invite a permeating cultural influence, Christians are often persuaded by the world and taught in the world to look within self to discover your identity. And this is absolutely opposite, antithetical to the biblical worldview, which we'll talk about in a second. We are told things like this, and I might be, I might be, there might be some offense that goes on here. I pray that what I'm about to tell you does not offend you, even though it might. If it does, I'd love to talk to you after. But let me just say this, and I think this is really important, that in the church culture, church teachings, and I'm not saying this is everywhere, but it is fairly widespread, these are the ways in which we are told to just to identify ourselves. These are the ways we are told to go through this process of finding out who we are. We're told that we're uniquely made. We're told that we're special. We're told that we're one of a kind. We're told that there's no one like us. And that true contentment comes by discovering who God has formed us on the inside. Again, it is a constant and continual uh, desire for the Christian to look inward. That felt pretty good. <laughs> Let me just say, to a certain degree, that is true. God has formed and fashioned us. God has created you. And you look around and we don't look like each other. 
and we look around and we all, we have our own distinct personalities, our distinct traits, our, our good things and our bad things, our opinions, our likes and dislikes, right? That that you're gonna deny reality if you don't believe that, right? So to a certain extent, that is the reality of everyone, Christian or not. But this way of thinking, when you are only told to look within yourself and the true uh, way to contentment spiritually is to just discover who God has created you on the inside, it falls far short to what the scriptures tell us as to how we are to understand our identity. This way of thinking, in many ways, can lead to spiritual narcissism because you're focused on yourself constantly. There's a sense of spiritual narcissism that you can develop here if that is all you're being told. And let me just say, it lays the emphasis on the uniqueness of self instead of the uniqueness of Christ. And that's the biggest problem, is that when we are told to look within to discover the uniqueness of ourselves, we completely disregard and abandon the uniqueness of Christ in accord with Ephesians 1. That it is through uh, what Christ has done, and it is through what he has accomplished for us, it is through our union with him that informs our identity, not by looking within. And so some of the features of this process can be a focus on personality. Personality traits, spiritual credentials, accomplishments, vocation, interests, passions. Like I said, right, earlier, man, I'm really into certain bands. I like certain music. You know, I have likes and dislikes. I love chicken wings. Is anybody like, oh, yeah. Yeah, all right. Right? I, I love chicken wings. <laughs> you know? Uh, there are all kinds of things that we can identify with. Personality traits. Everyone tells each other, you know, uh, what they see in, in one another. Like, you're this, you're that. We can describe you like this. You know, you, you tend to kind of form and shape your identity based on these things. But these are all looking within oneself. You can look at your nationality. You can look at your ethnicity. You can look at your traditions. These are all really results of looking within self to understand identity. And let me just say that while God is primarily responsible for a lot of these things and a lot of these features that we've talked about, right? We talked about identity as being features, characteristics of a person. And while I think God is, is in, in every way responsible for, for many of these things, whether it be our personality, our interests, our likes, our dislikes, you know, even our vocation, God calls us into certain vocations, you know, in accord with how he's formed and fashioned us. These are not to assume primary importance with regards to our shaping our identity. These are secondary matters. And when they become primary, then the exclusivity of Christ and what he's done for us is ignored. Does that make sense? Okay. So we can look within self, or we can look, as Paul did, outside of self. We can look beyond self. And that essentially is 
the construct of our union with Christ, is that when we enter into union with Christ, when we are found in Christ, essentially what we're saying is we are looking beyond self to understand who we are. And we are looking to him, primarily. So true identity is, is really saturated in this knowledge, not of self, but of Christ. True identity, true Christian identity, is not determined by a knowledge of self, but a knowledge of Christ. And that's why it is so important and so critical to understand and know and come into, be delivered into a true understanding and knowledge of Christ and what he's done by the Spirit. True identity is our knowledge of Christ giving rise to an awareness of Christ's redeeming work over our sin. True Christ-permeating identity is not determined by our personality. It's not determined by our spiritual accomplishments. It's not determined by our vocation, nor the opinions of friends, nor the assessment of counseling professionals. True identity comes by faith. True identity comes by faith as the reality of our union with Christ is presented with increased clarity. That is how we understand our union and our identity in him. So what are the requirements to get into Christ? What are the requirements of being found in Christ? Entering into Christ. We talked about last week about so much of the Christian teaching and, and, and ideas about salvation is that we, we, we are saved by receiving Christ into our hearts. But there's really nothing in scripture that really uh, you know, presents that as the reality of our salvation. Salvation really comes through us, not Christ entering into us, but us entering into Christ. So we must understand our salvation through those, that lens, through that understanding that it is our salvation that comes to us when we enter into Christ by faith. That's why when we think about the idea of in and the idea of salvation, we think of in as being permanent and fixed in salvation, salvation being the origin coming from Christ, that from Christ is the origin of salvation. Not only that, but Christ is the object of our salvation if we're in Christ. And not only that, we need to look nowhere else once we are in Christ for an understanding of our salvation. That's why our salvation is in Christ, because it comes from him, it's informed by him, and it essentially identifies who we are, and we've come to a place of salvation where we need to look no further. That is why we understand our salvation in Christ. But how is it that we are to enter into Christ? I want to see what the scriptures say here about this reality of us entering into Christ and what is sort of required for this to happen. First is this. I'll give you both of them right now. We're going to take one at a time. First is this. In order for you to enter into Christ and put your faith and trust in Christ and receive salvation in Christ, first thing is an awareness of your sin and mine. Secondly is knowledge of Christ. And those two work hand in hand. So it is as we are brought into the knowledge of Christ, we are brought into an awareness of our sin. 
And let me, let me explain to you why this is so critical. Because these things aren't really taught much in the church. Sin isn't really an issue or a topic that is very widely spoken about. It's not very popular. Because it forces us to, to a certain degree, if I have to say it, look within. <laughs> but let me just explain this to you for a moment. Okay? An awareness of our sin is the beginning of our true identity. I know that sounds weird, but let me just, let me just flesh this out a little bit for you. An awareness of our sin is the beginning of our identity, of true identity in Christ. And this is the reason. Because it is only through that that we recognize our desperate need for him. Right? So if we're not brought to a place of understanding our sin and how it separates us from God and how it is an offense and a reproach on the holiness of God, which is the one that we serve, if we don't understand that reality that sin does in our lives, then we can't fully understand our need for Christ. And that is why it is so important to preach a gospel that, that, that includes this idea of sin for people because people need to understand their need for Christ in order to receive him. So it is our sin that brings, and our awareness of it, that brings us into this place of our desperate need and awareness of our desperate need for him. That we have begun this pilgrimage toward Christ in a permeating identity in him. Through that, I want you to see with me here for a moment in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter is um, in the boat and he, he went out all night and he's in the boat and he's complaining about he has no fish and he sees Jesus and Jesus goes to Peter and says, hey, Peter, why don't you put your nets out onto the other side of the boat? And Peter says to him, Lord, what are you talking about? I'm a fisherman. You're not. I've done this for a living. You haven't. There's no reason for me to put my nets on the other side. We've been out all night, which is when you catch fish. It's in the middle of the day. I'm not going to catch anything. But Peter says, at your word, I will do it. And what happens? His boat becomes filled to overflowing with fish. But that's not the point of the story. I mean, it is because it's, it shows Christ's miraculous authority over creation, that he brings the fish in where there is none. But what does Peter say? Do you know what Peter's response is when he realizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one that's been prophesied six, seven hundred years before? What is Jesus's, or what is Peter's response? Depart from me, Oh Lord, for what? I am a sinful man. Oh, here we have the knowledge of Christ and the awareness of sin, boom, together. So it is only through the knowledge of Christ and we were brought to an awareness of our sin and then it is through an awareness of our sin that draws us and points us right back to the gospel and says, you need him, you need Christ. Because of your sin, because of what separates you from God. And so if we are going to be entering into Christ, if we have any relationship with him, if we are going to be in union with him, it is predicated on us understanding what differentiates us from him. So that we can understand fully what he's done for us. So this is so critical.
Paul says it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 to 16. He says this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. In other words, he judged me faithful. In other words, he looked on me and considered me faithful. That God, Christ, no longer looked at him as condemned and an enemy. But by faith, Paul was considered and judged faithful. We have to understand that Christ will render a judgment on everyone's life at the end of it all. He will render a judgment on my life and on everyone's life, whether you're a Christian or not. And what does Paul rejoice in? Paul rejoices in Christ judging him as what? Not condemned, but faithful. Faithful. He says, appointing me to his service. In other words, serving him as an apostle. Though formerly in my old life, formerly I was a blasphemer. I hated God. I was a persecutor, a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of Christ, and an insolent opponent. But even in the midst of my rebellion to God, what does God do? What does Christ do? He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What is Paul saying? He was unaware of his sin. He acted ignorantly. He acted ignorantly in unbelief. He didn't believe in Christ, and therefore he couldn't serve Christ and love Christ. But he was acting ignorantly in his unbelief. He was not informed of who Christ was. And so there was no knowledge of Christ that brought Paul to a place of repentance. It is only through the knowledge of Christ that we are brought into a place of repentance, and therefore we can actually enter into union with him. He says, he goes on and says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. In other words, listen to what I'm saying. This saying is trustworthy. Uh, this, this saying is backed and sealed by heaven itself. This is true and unshakable, and unwavering, and moored to Christ. It is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You must receive this into your hearts, in a sense, if you are going to be in Christ. And what is this saying that he is about to say? He says this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What was Paul's entrance into Christ? Realizing the degree of his sin against God. And so it is with us. It is our sin that draws us to Christ. It is our sin that, that promotes the splendor of who he is. It is our sin that continues to keep us humble before him. It is through the awareness of that that we are brought into Christ and receive and enjoy union with Christ. But not only that, it is that same awareness that continues and causes us to remain in Christ. John says it in his epistle in 1 John. He says, those who claim they have no sin, 
Um, they deny the truth, or they deny God, and the truth is not in them. So how is it that we are to know that we are remaining in Christ? Essentially, it's when we continue to be aware of our own sin in the face of Christ. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So look at me as an example and the patience of God. He could have rendered me because of my, my work and my persecution. He could have rendered me and had cast me out eternally. But God was patient with Paul. God is patient with us. God is patiently and lovingly in kindness and graciousness to us and lavishes his love upon us through the grace and mercy of Christ when we don't deserve it. Paul was in that place. He understood his awareness. Romans 7, verses 7 to 12, he also talks about that. If you want to write that down in your notes, I don't have time to go through that. But essentially in Romans 7, Paul basically posits the law of God, the commands of God, and he says that the effects of the law of God was to expose how I could not keep it. The, the, essentially the law and the commands of God are there in order for, to, for there to be a mirror, right? That not only the law of God shows me the holiness of God, but the law of God tells me that I can't keep it and that I can't live up to the standard of God. That drives me right to Jesus, to believe in him by faith so that I can be reconciled to God. And Paul is talking about how the law is, is there to expose and to bring him to an awareness of his sin so that he can turn to Christ. Now, let me just say that a lot of people understand to a certain degree morality. That even Christians understand to a certain degree right and wrong. And that is because God has given us a natural law in every creature. To a certain degree, every person has an awareness of right and wrong. But it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are convicted and brought to an awareness of our sin to drive us to Christ. So that is one. And then finally, the other one is knowledge. And this is so important. Our knowledge of Christ to a certain degree, leads us into Christ. A rigorous and reliable, long pursuit to know Christ through the word of Christ, by the spirit of Christ, disarms every temptation to fashion an identity based on human standards, religious achievements, cultural persuasion, and temporal realities. The only way we can come to a true sense of our identity in Christ is through a lifelong pursuit of knowing him. Philippians 3, 2 to 11. This is what Paul says with regards to knowing Christ. 
He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the Judaizers here. The ones who are coming in and imposing the law on these Christians and saying, hey, you're saved through Christ, but you also have to keep the law. That's what we were talking about in Galatians, right? Paul's talking about these same people in Philippians. He says, look out for these people, for we are the circumcision. Paul says, we are because we've been circumcised in the heart. We don't need to be circumcised in the flesh. We're circumcised in the heart. And that bursts open this wonderful desire to love Christ, to follow Christ, and to keep his commands. Because we're circumcised. We who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Also, if I need to add any more, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, He had all the credentials. He had all the accomplishments. He had everything he needed for his identity. And he could stay there. That was Paul's identity. It was a teacher of the law, a a man of zeal for the commandments of God. But what does Paul say? He says, but whatever gain I had, in other words, whatever had come to me through my spiritual pursuits, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Some versions render that as dung. That's how worthless Paul considered it. Dung. Worthless. Of no value. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might, what, gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ. I can either rely on my own abilities, my own accomplishments, my own spiritual performance, but essentially my identity is in myself. But when I have been faced with the beautiful and complete and thorough work of Christ on the cross for me to be delivered and to be reconciled, to be redeemed, that is worth more than anything. That is what I will choose to find my identity in. I will be found in Christ. Why? Because I have an incessant desire and passion to know him. Knowledge of Christ is so key. Above all things, Paul wanted to know Christ. He says this in Philippians 3, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in a sense that your love would be limitless with knowledge and all discernment. How is it our love grows and becomes, uh, achieves a place of limitlessness? Through knowing Christ. So often we're told as the church that we just need to fall in love with Christ. That we just need to have this intimate relationship with Christ. But what Paul is saying is that our love for Christ is predicated on our knowledge, our knowing of Christ. That we are not to suspend our mind in our spiritual pursuit just for an experience. But that we are to be informed by the knowledge of Christ through the word of Christ. And that leads to a more passionate Worship of Christ. It causes us to fall in love with Christ because we know him. We cannot love what we do not 
No. He says, your love will abound in your knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1.5, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched or you have become wealthy in him in all speech and all knowledge, knowing, understanding. And for Paul, a robust understanding of Christ led to a more affectionate love. And that is how it is to be with us. A journey into Christ is much more than just emotions and feelings and experiences. It is those things. We should have a sense of emotional connection with Christ and feelings for Christ. And we should engage and, and, and expect experiences with him, like longing for him, intimacy with Christ. He does desire that for everyone who has put their faith in him, but not apart from knowledge. When we simply dis- determine our faith by our visceral feelings, we will certainly and quickly be drawn off course, believing things about Christ that are just not true. But we are told to suspend all attempts to reason and understand, to neglect our minds, and to simply follow our hearts. But unfortunately, that's not what Scripture tells us to do. Scripture demands and Christ demands something much greater, something much better. It demands a stout and substantial pursuit to know Christ, to be firm and confident in the doctrines of Christ, to value and guard the truth of Christ, and above all else, to know, to cherish, and love the surpassing richness of our obedience to Christ. That's what the scriptures demand. That's what Christ demands, that we are to be informed by the teachings and the doctrines. And those are not very popular words today. To be constrained by the doctrines that are put forth in the scriptures is not popular because we want to worship Christ in God any way we feel. And God says, no, I have prescribed to you the way in which you will worship me and is in accord with my truth. So let every experience that you have with Christ be informed by the truth. And don't let your experiences determine the truth about Christ. It should be the other way around. And finally, our identity must be exclusively informed by a spiritual union. That union must be to Christ and through Christ and by Christ. This is true identity. Abandoning self and entering into Christ through our union with him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.